The Bible reading for today comes from Genesis chapter 27, verse 41, to chapter 28, verse 9. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will appeal my brother Jacob. When Rebekah was told what her older son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, Your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran, and stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of the land, from a Hittite woman like these, my life is not worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel, and take a wife for yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of people. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land that God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, and the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, his mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram, to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padanaan. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ismail and married Mahalos, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ismail, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he had already had. Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you. Well done, Samantha, with all those Hebrew names. They are tricky. Uh, I wonder if you guys are aware of a quirky little feature of the American legal system where there's this thing called presidential pardons. Right? So essentially what this is, is the power of the President of the United States of America to forgive or pardon anybody who's been convicted of a crime against the United States, against federal crimes. Now, this is a, a broad and unilateral sort of power. The President doesn't need to take this to Congress. He doesn't need to get any sort of approval from any other checks or balances. He can pretty much forgive anyone for anything except impeachment, like if a President has, has done the wrong thing himself. Now, there's been some controversial pardons over the years, but I'm just going to tell you about one of them, uh, and that is that after the Civil War in America, in 1868, on Christmas Day, President Andrew Johnson pardoned all soldiers who had fought in the Confederate Army in the Civil War. He thought that this would be a good way to try to put an end to the division that had wreaked havoc across the nation for four years. And to a certain extent, that was largely successful. It was a pretty successful public policy. But the fact that all those soldiers had been forgiven doesn't change the reality of the war that had taken place and the consequences that had flown forth from that. And in lots of ways, we still see, even today in America, some of the things that 
fractured and which were really, you know, in lots of ways in culture, entrenched after the Civil War. So despite the fact that President Johnson forgave all these guys, the consequences continued for, for decades, even now, you know, a hundred plus years later. So that's one of the things that we're going to be looking at today. We're going to be looking at what it means to be forgiven, but also what it means to endure the consequences of sin and what we can take away from that in this passage today. So, a quick recap of where we've been so far. We've been reading about Esau and Jacob and Isaac and Rebekah. We heard last week about how Isaac intended to bless his eldest and favorite son Esau with a blessing. He says, go out, hunt, get me some food. We found out how much Isaac enjoys a good meal. And then come back and I will bless you before I die. He thinks that his death is imminent. Rebecca, overhearing this plan, says, well, actually, uh, Jacob is the one that I want to see get the blessing, and so she contrives a scheme to dress Jacob up like Esau, and then have him go in to Isaac, who was blind and old, and to have Isaac give the blessing to Jacob instead. It's successful, despite Isaac's hesitations, and as a result, Isaac blesses Jacob, dressed up as Esau, and the blessing falls upon him. Now, what we're going to do today in this passage is see some of the direct consequences that come as a result of this complex and difficult family drama. And they're going to help us think a little bit about how we are to live and think about sin and its consequences today. So, let's jump into the first consequence here. Genesis, chapter chapter 27, verse 41 says, Esau held a grudge against Jacob because the blessings his father had given him. He said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are near, then I will kill my brother Jacob. Right? What the NIV translates here is, is hold a grudge. The, the literal translation is, is something more like was hostile towards, had great enmity. He was now set against his brother. That's the idea. It's not just a passive, seething sort of grudge, di- difficult feelings. It's a hostility towards his brother. In fact, uh, Rachel in just a few verses, sorry, Rebecca in just a few verses is going to describe it as a fury. Uh, and also we see here that the only reason he hasn't acted out on this feeling of hostility is because essentially he's waiting for his dad to die and then he intends to kill Jacob. The only reason he's not killing him yet is to spare his father more grief. So it's an intense feeling that Esau now has against his brother. And it's worth noting that it wasn't just this one instance, is it, that actually brought about Esau's feelings against Jacob. You might remember that early on in Genesis chapter 25, we saw the story of how when Esau and Jacob were younger, Jacob tricked or you know, essentially took advantage of his brother Esau when he was desperate and hungry by getting him to sell his birthright to him for a bowl of stew. And the result of all this is that we see brothers turn to enemies. Okay, So that's the first consequence. Brothers are turned to enemies as a result of Jacob and Rebekah's sin. Next up, we've got the second consequence that really does flow out of the first. It says, when Rebekah was told what her eldest son Esau had said, she sent for her younger son Jacob and said to him, your brother Esau is planning to avenge himself by killing you. Now then, my son, do what I say. Flee at once to my brother Laban in Haran. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury subsides. When your brother is no longer angry with you and forgets what you did to him, I'll send word for you to come back from there. Why should I lose both of you in one day? 
Now, this is really interesting for a couple of different reasons. One, we just see that Rebecca's always got her finger on the pulse of exactly what is happening in the household. She always seems to know what's going on. But we also see here that despite the fact that Jacob has clearly been her favoured son, she also cares about Esau and understands the significance of what she has done in this. So she knows that Esau is a passionate man who's passions rise and fall. It's her expectation, and we're going to see that she is right, that Esau's rage will subside. I'm not sure if he totally forgets what Jacob did to him, although it's really, really interesting that when we see Jacob and Esau eventually reunited 20 years later, this issue doesn't really come up. It doesn't seem to be something that's at the forefront of Esau's mind or concern. There's a real sense of he has moved on from it. So Rebecca knows her son Esau, and she also understands that what she's done is essentially lose her relationship with Esau. She says here that she doesn't want Jacob to die so that she doesn't lose both sons in one day. She has an understanding here that on some level she has lost her relationship with Esau, and it's now her greatest fear that she would lose her favorite son Jacob as well. But the sad truth is, is that despite the fact that, as you can see here from this passage, it was her intention only for Jacob to be gone a little while, it's going to be 20 years before Jacob actually returns back to the land that he grew up in, and Rebecca will never see her favoured son, Jacob, again. Just a track back a little bit from what I was talking about last week, we see there that immediately what springs to mind as she goes and talks about uh to Isaac about the situation with Jacob and Esau. She again mentions the the wives of Esau that she has such enmity against, there's been such bitterness of spirit to her. I think this, you know, it's significant that it pops up here, but that's really something that we were talking about last week, and I just thought I'd mention that as we're working through it. But the second consequence here, we've got first brothers turn to enemies, and then the second consequence is that Rebecca loses both her sons. So both Jacob and Rebecca pay a pretty hefty price for the scheme that they worked on together in order for Jacob to get the blessing from Isaac by deception. Now the third consequence, possibly after seeing the first two here, and how we typically think about what happens when we make mistakes and sin, what's surprising about the third consequence is that it's actually a positive one, or at least one, that God had intended for quite some time. Remember, back in Genesis 25, when Rebecca was having these you know, difficult pains with the, her pregnancy, and she inquires of the Lord, what's going on? He says, there's two nations at war in your womb, but I have favoured the younger. It says that the elder will favour the younger. This was always God's intention, but it's amazing to see that it's through this deception that God's plan eventually comes to pass. But that's exactly what we see. And so Isaac now finally starts to move in the direction that God had intended for things to go. Maybe not because he has necessarily gotten on board with that plan directly himself, but certainly as a result of Rebecca's pleading of the situation with Esau's wives and understanding that he's given the blessing to Jacob, he's now going to put upon Jacob another blessing, this time not one of his own devising, but the blessing of Abraham. So it says, Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padam Aram to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. 
take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. This was a big deal for Abraham back in the day. It's a lesson that Isaac totally missed with Esau. You might remember Abraham, when he was getting close to death, he wasn't worried about passing the blessing on. He knew that that was going to Isaac. What he was concerned about was making sure that Isaac didn't marry a Canaanite woman. We saw the servant travel back to his homeland. The whole thing with Rebekah, we, we saw that story play out. Isaac didn't do that with Esau. He's let him marry these Canaanite wives. Pain has been brought in. And now, upon Rebekah's pleading, he's not going to make the same mistake. Make sure you go to Canaan, get a wife from there. But then he goes on. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples, a people of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. You remember last week we mentioned as we looked at the blessing that Isaac pronounced upon Jacob when he was dressed up as Esau. It was a curious one. There were some elements there that seemed to connect back to the Abrahamic blessing, but it wasn't really on point. It was something that he seems to have developed himself, his own desire for Esau perhaps, that was then given to Jacob. But now we see the pronouncement really clearly of the Abrahamic promises coming to Jacob just as God intended. And so it says, then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padamaran, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So again, that second consequence, Rebekah loses both sons in one day, but also, of course, the corollary of that is Jacob has to leave his hometown. And then we get this little footnote here. You could count this as a, a fourth consequence. I don't think it's quite as significant, so I haven't sort of put it on that same sort of level. But it does tie up the passage and, again, gives us an insight into Esau and just what sort of guy he was. It says that now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padam Aaron to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Padam Aaron. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. So we see here that the penny finally drops for Esau on some level. He, he finally puts the pieces together. Oh my goodness, my, my parents don't, don't like these Canaanite wives that I've taken and brought into our household. And I guess it's good that he gets some understanding of this situation, but I'm not entirely convinced that this was the, the right move to really get it fixed up, but we're going to give him some points for trying, because I'm not sure that when you sort of have two difficult women in your life that immediately just bringing in a third woman is necessarily going to counter whatever's going on there, as great as she might be. Uh, I'm not sure if three wives immediately solves the problem of two, so there's that. Uh, but also, he goes to Ishmael, who we've already seen is you know, somewhat on the outside now of the family of Isaac. It's really clear that God has moved on from Ishmael. He's pronounced his blessings upon Isaac. Abraham had some concern from Ishmael to hopefully see him do well, but he's sort of outside the promised line and Esau in going to him sort of maybe shows that he doesn't totally grasp exactly what's going on. Not that anyone really has a great idea in these passages from what we can tell, but Esau is now a guy that we've seen sell his stew so his birthright for a stew, we've seen him, he is a passionate man that, you know, goes from fury to forgetfulness. We've seen that he, uh, in, you know, spontaneous response to what his parents do now, goes and grabs a, another wife to try and fix the situation. 
he's just a guy that's a bit all over the place uh, and an example perhaps of one who lacks wisdom in scripture. All right. So, the consequences that we've got so far from this passage, just to put a bow on this for now, is that first up, we see brothers turned and enemies. We see Rebecca loses both sons in one day. And we see the Abrahamic blessings now come upon Jacob just as God intended. But what is that, you know, what, what, what's the lessons for us to take away from this passage? Well, it's interesting to me that, like we said, that third consequence, that Jacob is the one who God always intended to bless. Jacob is clearly a part of God's people. Whatever Jacob has done here, his deceitfulness, his scheming, his ambition, he is still the one who clearly has been made by God's grace a part of God's people. But the fact that that happens doesn't change the fact that he also has to deal with the consequences for his sin. His brother turned against him, losing his relationship with his mother. The blessings don't outweigh the fact that those things were destructive as well. And so we need to think here a little bit about what it actually means to pay the penalty for sin and understand what that is. So it says here in Romans 6.23, a verse I'm sure is familiar to many of you, that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So for everyone who believes in Jesus today, the penalty... Well, sorry, the, 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 the case for all people everywhere in the world. The penalty for sin is what? It is death. Okay, we see this a few times in scripture. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom that needed to pay, be paid was death. It was Jesus had to give his life to pay this ransom. Ephesians 1.7, when Paul writes, in him we have redemption through his blood. Redemption is the redeeming of something. It's a price that has to be paid in order to clear a debt. What was the debt that needed to be paid? It was blood, death. And so when we talk about the penalty for sins has been paid by Jesus, what we're saying is, is that the blood price of death has been paid. The penalty for our sin is death. And that should frame up how we understand what forgiveness is as well. So in 1 John 1, 9, when it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness, what that means is, is that we no longer have to pay the death penalty for sin. That we've been declared righteous through our union with Christ so that even though we have sinned, we are treated as though we are not guilty and now we no longer have to die. That's what forgiveness of sins is. It means that we are freed from the death penalty that we deserve. But, and we all know this, but it's one of those things where it's sort of, when you say it, it just makes you reflect on it a little bit. Just because everyone who believes in Jesus, just if you're a Christian, that doesn't mean that because you've had your sins forgiven and the death penalty has been paid, that there's no longer consequences for sin. It's a little bit uh, like if you were to receive a presidential pardon for murder, right? In certain parts of the states, they still have the death penalty on the books there. And it's possible. It's within law for the president to forgive or pardon somebody on death row. 
It's happened a few times. Normally they've reduced their sentence down to life in prison or something like that. But it is possible for them to forgive them completely. But even if a murderer was pardoned from the death sentence, you think about all the consequences that still would flow on from what they've done. There's the pain and the destruction that they've wrought, the life that they've ended, the family and their pain, their hurt. There's the guilt and shame that that person feels themselves. There's the the disdain that's on their name, the difficulty in finding work, their uh, recognition that wherever they go, if people understand who they are, that they'll be looked at in a certain way. They are a murderer. Despite the fact that they've been pardoned, they've been forgiven, they don't need to face the death penalty, even if they change, even if they do a better job, even if they help people in the community going forward, the consequences of what they've done goes with them. And I think that that's really important for us to understand as we think about Jacob, who was made a part of God's people by God's grace, and we're going to see he's going to be blessed and he's going to be wealthy and he's going to grow and the promises are going to come through him. He still has to deal here with the consequences of his sin. Not murder in this case, but the deception and the scheming and the trickery that he's put upon his family. And it has an impact for generations to come. And it's the same for us today. For us as Christians, when we sin, there are still consequences for us. We've been forgiven by God. Our our relationship with God is right. It is good. No matter what we do, that is the promise of the gospel. Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for our sins. We are forgiven. We are right with God. We are loved by Him. He died for us while we were sinners. Our sin today, even though it is wrong, even though it's bad, we don't want to do it, it doesn't end our relationship with God because it's by grace that we have a relationship with Him. That part is done. Praise God. But that doesn't change the fact that sin remains destructive. And that's the first thing that we need to take away from this. Sin is destructive. Jacob loses relationships in this passage. There's hostility now within his own family. If you're a Christian, you're forgiven by God's grace, but if you mistreat your family, if you are harsh, unkind, unforgiving, you are going to pay a price in those relationships. It's not the full big penalty of death for sin, but there are consequences as a result of your sin in the here and now. If you sin in your course of employment or school or something like that, there are going to be consequences for those actions. Despite the fact that you've been forgiven from the death penalty, sin is still destructive in this world now. You know, it's one of the, the, those great questions, right? What if you've got somebody who is a, a bank robber and then they become a Christian in prison uh, and their life totally transforms, they're a new person, should they be set free? And the answer is no. Now, we could in our grace forgive them, but, but legally they are to pay the price. There's consequences for what they have done. And the humble response of the Christian is to receive those consequences and acknowledge that we have done wrong and that that means that there are going to be results from that, oftentimes negative for us. Now, in God's grace, it doesn't mean that we always experience the full extent of our mistakes. But despite the fact that the death penalty has been paid, sin can still be really, really destructive. And it would be foolishness for us to flout the grace of God and think that in some way we can keep on sinning because the price has been paid without experiencing the consequences of it. So that's the first thing to learn from this. Sin is destructive. 
The second one is this. We need to learn from the destruction and the pain that sin causes. I'm going to quote from a longer passage here in the New Testament, but it makes the point really, really clearly in God's words, much better than my own. Uh, And so let me read this verse to you from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4 says this. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. See, God's promise to us as his children in this world is not that we will be free from pain and discipline and hardship, but rather that we can now, in the grace of God, knowing that Christ has paid the price for our sins that we no longer need to face the death penalty, understand that when we do something wrong and we experience the negative consequences of it, this is not God punishing us for our sin. The penalty for sin is death. That penalty has been paid for us by Christ, but what he will do is take these negative consequences and rather than seeing them as punishment, he now uses them to discipline us in the way that we train a child. When a child sins, when they make a mistake, they're not cast out from the family. They're not no longer a part of this relationship. But what we will do is let them experience negative consequences or even bring negative consequences upon them so that they can learn that sin, the disobedience, that all of those things are painful and destructive. And God does the same things with us. He encourages to endure hardship as disciplining and chastening of the Lord but not as punishment. Do you see the difference? Punishment is the price you have to pay for the crime. It's it's balancing the ledger. Discipline is something where you experience pain in order to learn a lesson. And so, even though we've been forgiven by grace, the lesson that we're meant to take away from the negative consequences of sin is, that's painful, that's destructive, I want to live more holy, let me not do that again. Now, in Jacob's case, I'm not sure how much we actually see this in his life. We see him wrestle with God later and gain wisdom through that. We see him get pain, and there seems to be some growth for him, but he's not a perfect guy by any stretch. But now, in the fuller revelation that we have in the New Testament, I think that this is the lesson for us to learn. And though it's painful, it does bring righteousness to those willing to be trained by it. Whatever wisdom I have... Today, in so many instances, I can trace it back to painful lessons 
that I've learned. I'm sure you can think of the same. But the biggest mistakes that I've made are the ones that I've learned the most from when I've been willing to listen to God and hear his chastening and know that he still loves me despite what I've done, but that I need to learn what it is to be holy through the pain that I've had to endure as a result of my mistakes. So, sin is destructive, but we had to learn through that destruction. And then finally, the third thing is make reparations. I'm going to go there for, for time's sake. I'm going to jump to a part of the New Testament instead. But with Jacob, 20 years later when he comes back, uh, there's a story where he, he sends out all his cattle and herds and wife and children ahead of him as he's coming back to the land where he grew up uh, and giving these gifts to Esau, an acknowledgement of, of, of the wrong that existed between the two of them. And it's partly to ward off any hostility he might share towards him, but at the same time, it's an acknowledgement of, I have done wrong, and he's coming back to give to him an acknowledgement of that. In the New Testament, we see it really clearly, right, in the classic kid story of Zacchaeus, the wee little man, all right, where he's, he's a tax collector, seems to have been stealing from people, he wants to see Jesus on the road, he can't see past all of them because he's such a short guy, he climbs the tree, Jesus says, come down, I'm coming to your house for dinner, and when he's welcomed by the Lord like that, Zacchaeus makes this declaration, look Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. He recognizes that he has done wrong, and now he wants to try and make it right. And we see Jacob do that, at least in some sense, just a little bit later down the trap, about five, six chapters ahead. So for us as Christians, we need to recognize that sin is destructive, that there are lessons for us to learn, but one way that we had to respond when we sin is to seek to make reparations, to, to repay, to try and make amends for the wrong that we have done. And listen, this isn't easy. There's the pain of having to acknowledge the wrong that we've done, but also the person that we have hurt, the wrong that we have done to them might mean that they are angry and hurt and not yet wanting to be at peace with us. So the thing about making amends, about making reparations, is it's got to be something that you give to them on their terms. It's not something that you're doing yourself to clear your own conscience. It's not something that you're doing to try and pay the price for what you did. That's something that only Jesus can do through his death. Making amends is about showing the other person that I acknowledge my wrong and I want to make it right to the extent of my human abilities and what I can do. But if you are a husband that has mistreated his wife for years and she is reticent to immediately welcome you back in, that's not a sign that she is being unforgiving. That's a, that's a, a sign of the hurt that you have caused. And whatever damage you've done, you need to be willing to make amends and reparations for years in order to rebuild trust and love back into that space and, and hope to restore that relationship. If you've stolen a bunch of money, more than you could ever sort of possibly pay back, you, you can't just you know shift that by sort of writing a check or something like that. But after years of dedication and recognizing the wrong that I've done, that you're forgiven by God, this is the key thing, it's being right with God, it's, being, it's knowing that you're loved by him that puts you in a place where you can endure that sort of pain of making amends and reparations over years. But this is the sort of commitment that we as Christians should have when we've done wrong to recognize that there are consequences for our actions. 
in our contemporary context, we've got this great new phrase, right? Ghosting. It's when a relationship gets awkward and it's just so much easier just to just to vanish on social media, on phones, for text communication, that sort of thing. So much of our relationship are done through devices now that it's easy for me to simply withdraw and vanish effectively rather than deal with the awkwardness and the wrong that I might have done or the hurt that I've endured. And to a certain extent, Jacob, you know, he does ghost Esau. He makes no attempt to contact him for a long time. But in the step, but when he recognizes that the time has come for them to speak, he makes every effort to make amends, to make reparations, to attempt to, to restore that relationship in the way that he can, acknowledging the wrong that he's done. So, as we think this week, as we go forth, how to live in light of this passage, let's recognize that sin is destructive. Even though we've been forgiven, and we no longer have to pay the price of death. Let's recognize that sin is destructive, but that we can learn from that destruction and pain to become more holy, and that it might just be that we have to make reparations and amends for the wrongs that we have done, possibly, for years. But it's our way of acknowledging and recognizing that though we've been forgiven by God, we've done wrong, and we recognize the consequences, and we want to do right. I'm going to pray now that we'll be able to do this by the power of the Spirit. Father God, this is hard stuff. It's not easy to confess where we've gone wrong, to acknowledge the hurt that we've caused others. And it's painful for us to have to be willing to go back there in order to think about what we might do to make amends, to make reparations, to try and restore relationship, to restore the trust that was lost to restore the, the assets that we might have robbed people of. But Father, by your Spirit, we know that all things are possible. In Christ, we can do all things. We can humble ourselves to the point where we are willing to confess, knowing that we've been forgiven by you, knowing that we don't have to pay the ultimate price of death, knowing that we are safe in eternity with you and loved by you no matter what. And out of that place, we can seek to make right the wrongs that we've done. I pray, Father, this morning, particularly for those who know the wrong that they've done. Maybe they've done wrong for years. Maybe they've remained in bitterness and resentment for decades. Families affected by generations of of sinfulness and hostility and enmity and unforgiveness. And this morning, Lord, you're speaking to them. And I pray, Father... For all of us, that we would not shut out the voice of the Holy Spirit, but rather, Lord, that we would let you work in us, that we would humble ourselves, that we would not treat the relationships and the things that you've given us in this world lightly, but rather, Father, in the grace that you've given to us, knowing how great your forgiveness is of us, that we would be willing to do the hard work of confessing, of making amends, of seeking to restore not for our sake, not so we can have our conscience cleansed, but rather, Father, so we can show that person that we have wronged love and care and concern and acknowledge the hurt that we've done. And even though reconciliation may not be possible in this world, Father, we thank you that in the life to come we know there'll be no more pain, no more tears, and that even us Christian brothers and sisters who have sinned against each other will once more be at peace. 
But Father, may we not wait for that day. May we make every effort in your grace to pursue that peace now. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.